This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly Fitbar Special. Scotland and their goal machine, Scott McTominay, beat international giants brackets with Josselu up front. Spain, a fantastic performance, thoroughly deserved, leaving them top of the group as their fans danced in the rain to freed from desire at Hamden. It looked like a lot of fun. It's four points from two games for Wales after squeezing past Latvia. The Irish almost nick a point against the French and Belgium win in Germany. Also today we'll discuss the FA's on the face of it mean plan for the non-league player contracts. There's Chinese takeaways and Simon. And of course, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, bonjour, ça va, Philippe Auclair. Ça va très bien. Bonjour, Max. Oui. Jonathan Vaduba, hello. Good day. And Barca Jim, Jim Burke, live from Scotland. Hello. Hello, Max. How the hell are we? Yeah, <laughs> pretty good, mate. I presume you're you're well yourself. Um, I, I I mean, obviously, Scotland beat Spain two nil yesterday, following up their three nil victory over Cyprus. They are top of Group A, two wins from two. Um, uh, from one Jim to another, who wrote in Scotland are good, aren't they, Jim? How was how was last night? Well, in the interest of full disclosure, the first half I didn't see because I was gigging in Edinburgh last night. But I took that as a really good omen because the last time I was gigging during a big game, it was another big result for Scotland. And that was when Harry Kane put his penalty over the bar. <laughs> oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> yeah, OK. But no, it was it was very unexpected. I'm not going to lie. I was hoping for a draw because I think I said to you before the game kicked off, we were top of the, we were top of the group before the game kicked off purely on the basis of the alphabet, right? So <laughs> to, then, to then end up six points after two games, it's just incredible, especially those two games. You know, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And Philippe, they deserved it, didn't they? Oh my gosh, didn't they just? And I think that um, you could even say that perhaps it could have been um, a, a clearer victory when you think about uh, around Christie's, Christie's free kick. Also, another a one-on-one, which perhaps could have been dealt with better. I mean, the Spaniards had had a few chances themselves, but to be honest, they had absolutely no response to uh, Scotland's organisation. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm saying things that I'd never thought I would say in a <laughs> weekly podcast, especially with Jim present. But they were they were absolutely magnificent. And I where to start? I mean, you know, um, I didn't quite. I wasn't aware of the fact that Scott McTominay could could be this goal-scoring machine, for example. I wasn't aware of the fact that they looked really easy on the eye at times and that there were some really good passages of play. It was not just be compact, be organized, wait for the counter, then strike. No, there was some actually really good football being played. Uh, the atmosphere sound, I mean, it sounded absolutely fantastic. I mean, obviously, we're going to have to talk a little bit about this Spain team, which is a little bit weird, because when you've got a Spanish team in which you've got two players from the Mike Ashley era Newcastle, uh, that tells you that perhaps this is not quite the Spain that won World Cups and European Championships. But no, Scotland thoroughly deserved that. And I don't know what to say. Uh, I am I'm shocked. I, I maybe I hadn't, Jim, watched enough of Scotland in recent months um, or over, over the recent past to guess it was possible. Were there signs that were there uh, um, moments where you thought, oh, actually, you know, Steve Clark is on the verge of doing something a bit special with this group of players? Yes, um, in many ways. The first thing was he solved the conundrum of the fact that all our best players are left backs. Right, you know, that we had left-backs that could get into most international squads, but we had two of them, arguably three, and it's like, right, well, that needs to... So once they set the team up so that you could get the two of them playing there and playing their strengths, then that was a big part of the jig... That was the main part of the jigsaw in place. And then the other thing is, looking through the team now, if you go back four or five years, most of the team now are either playing... Champions League football, the Scots lads, 
Uh, we've got a lot of Premiership players. We've got even the, the guys like Porches and um, Porches and maybe Gunn. You know, they wouldn't look out of place in a Premiership team, albeit mid to low Premiership. You know, but so we've we've got a we've got a solid core now of players who can perform at a good at, at a higher level. And Steve Clark is is very well liked as a coach and very well respected as a coach. And the players, I know from a friend up here who's a journalist, that the players really like working for him. So you, you start to put all of that together, you get a wee bit of the club mentality, you get the organisation. The only thing that is missing, the only piece of the jigsaw that is missing is that striker that you know when you're only getting two, three, you know, maybe a couple of chances a game who you could put your house on, he is going to score one of them. If we had that piece of the jigsaw, then it would, you know, we'd be really confident. But listen, I'll settle for this. This, this listen, this, this is. I'm sitting in the morning after we beat Spain two 0 Right, come on. Normally, <laughs> normally there's a lot of drugs have to be taken before you can take that kind of thing quite comfortably. You know, oh, it's magnificent. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. You know, missing that striker that could, you know, get you goals. Because actually, Jonathan. Not many teams have that. Like John says, why do the big nations not have decent strikes anymore? Like England have one, but Germany, Italy, Holland, Spain, it says none. Like arguably Brazil. Okay, that's a bit harsh on Jesus and Richarlison, right? But And France are still using Giroud up front. What has happened? Oh, Kulunwani. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, true. He's, you know, up and coming. That is, that's fair. And Kunku as well, who's not that bad. So, okay, yeah. yeah, we're okay. I, listen, I'm just, I'm just the messenger here, Philippe. Jonathan, what... Is there anything in that, or is it just a, a, a quirk of fate that, that big sides, barring, of course, France, who have a glut of centre-forwards, you know, there just aren't loads of them about? Yeah, I think it's something we learned during the World Cup. That um, I think I remember remarking that Eric Maxim, Chupa Moting, is legitimately one of the best strikers in the world uh, in the in the World Cup. And it seemed weird to say it, but it's almost true in the way he led the line, um, not only for Cameroon, but obviously in the way he does for, for Bayern Munich. Not every nation is blessed with kind of that that perfect number nine that you kind of want these days. I, I don't really know why. I don't know if it's like a a factor of maybe academy coaching or maybe maybe just not as much sort of street football and it's more technical and you've got kind of more technical forwards now who can play across the line and not necessarily those those nice uh, target men that you maybe want. But I think in the Spanish media, a lot of the criticism for Spain last night was a lot due to the the fullbacks. I think Pedro Porro got a bit of a a bit of a roasting from the Spanish media. Danny Carvajal as well um, w- was not spared any kind of um, criticisms. And, and also the manager, of course, Luis de la Fuente. I think a lot of the comments were around the fact that he didn't really seem to have a plan B. Um, obviously, he's coming for Luis Enrique and, and you know, Spain are kind of going through this new era. Um, it's strange to see sort of players like Danny Ceballos, who, you know, you would have maybe not expected to see a, a kind of starting for Spain, given the ca- career he's had. It's sort of had an up and down career, you know, um, one minute kind of struggling at Arsenal and then now um, in, at Real Madrid and, and now, in, you know, in the starting for Spain, but just didn't really seem to gel. And I think the, you know, a lot of the Spanish media were really critical of De La Fuente and his inability to sort of have a plan B when when things weren't going uh, well. On the subject of goal scorers, um, Jim, Stuart says, do you think Scott McTominay should wear a kilt to pick up the Ballon d'Or? Buff Siegel, at this rate, how many more games until McTominay beats Kane's record? Jim, is Wout Weghorst set to lose his place in the Manchester United team to Scott McTominay? Two goals from the bench against Cyprus, two last night. Uh, he only had one in 37, I think, before that. Um, he said afterwards he, he used to be an attacking midfielder until he got big and then he wasn't like nippy anymore. But like he arrived, what do you say, Lampard style perfectly, didn't he, in this game? Not the style I would obviously use, Max. Um, but no, but but I think it's exactly that. I think he gets that degree of freedom because he's got McGregor, who does play that that role where he's he's the kind of he's the kind of oil in the machine. So he's got and he's a very clever player, McGregor as well. So he knows that I can go and make this run because I know and with the five at the back, he knows that even if nothing comes of it, he's not. He's not causing a problem for the teammates behind him, which possibly if he started doing it, well, definitely if he started doing it at United, he would, you know. So he got a bit more freedom, and yeah, listen, I'm, I, I, 
I'm just happy the goals went in, mate. I, 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 <laughs> I like the way that every, every sentence ends with "I'm just having a nice what? time." Listen, if I cannot enjoy, if I cannot enjoy this, I sent Ellis a text message at the at full time. Just what a time to be alive! And I think he got he got more giddy than me. Um, he got more giddy than me. But no, it's it's just fantastic. It's fantastic, and as I say, it's a shame that there's no. If we had even some kid somewhere that was like Ken Evan Ferguson's at, at Ireland, even if we had a young lad who played number nine coming up through, then I I would be starting to get even more giddy. But as I've said to you before, Argentina seventy eight still is a scar that I carry with me. So I've I've got always got a cap on my giddiness. Um, but that that would be the that would be the one <laughs> the one thing that if we had. A number nine, um, then we we could be really optimistic um, about how we were going to do. Jonathan, how many years before you were born was Argentina seventy eight? I'm older than you actually think, Max. By the way, but I'm not going to reveal it on this podcast. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> You're not forty two though. It was definitely you? before I was born. Um, but just on the point, no, oh, just on the point of of uh, of a striker. Obviously, the Norway are in this group, and Haaland is in Norway is playing for Norway and. They're struggling. So, did he play yesterday? Did he? Because he didn't play against Spain, did he? He didn't play yesterday. Yeah. He didn't yeah. play, but obviously they drew with with Georgia, and you know Scotland's taking a real advantage now because it's going to be you look you'd think anyway it's between Scotland and and maybe Norway, and, um, or maybe well Spain might be in the mix now, but it just shows that having the top striker if he's not available then it doesn't really matter. Our next game is away in Norway, and I never would wish injury on any player, but I am hoping that in the last minute of the last game for both City and Arsenal, there are two players who pull up with hamstring injuries that will take six weeks to heal. They'll be fine for pre-season and they can get to do celebrating whatever they've won, but sadly they're going to miss the games in June. That would be a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, uh, Philippe, do you think Robertson was lucky to, to get just a yellow for that little elbow on Pedro Porro? Uh, was that about right? Yeah, I think that was about right. I, think, right. no, I, yeah. I, I was not shocked. Were, were you? I mean, yeah. I, I was perhaps a bit biased. It's true. I had my um, Scotland spectacles on. Yeah, I just thought it was a bit silly, actually, is what I thought. Like, because it was quite a spicy game. You just don't need, you could see the way he was really trying to say, Are you okay? That he was trying to say, Well, I obviously mm. didn't mean it. And he clearly did mean it. Rodri afterwards, Philippe said, The oh. way they play, as in Scotland, you have to respect that. But for me, it's a bit rubbish. I'm not really respecting it, is it, arguably? Uh, always wasting time. They provoke you and they always fall over. For me, this is not football. Um, your thoughts, Philippe? Uh, it takes one to know one. Um, was the expression? I um, that was. Uh, I, I thought it was hilarious. What I thought was really hilarious. I suppose I have to be a uh, full disclosure, right? Rodri is not my favourite player. Okay, especially for what he did to Martin Udegaard in the games against Norway, which I didn't like much. And also, if Scotland plays against anybody but France, I will be supporting Scotland. So that's that's, you know. But I really enjoyed what he said because he was really hurting. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was, it, it was totally ridiculous. I mean, there's some cases, I mean, to assign the fact that Spain were not very good and Scotland were excellent to the fact that the Scottish players were faking injury or taking their time, as if Rodri, of course, knew nothing about the dark arts of football, was rather funny. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. But but there is kind of, Jim, this notion that, you know, Scottish players wouldn't do that. And maybe many years ago, right, when, you know, every Scotland player lived within 20, you know, centimetres of Hampden Park and they, had, they hadn't seen, you know, but like they all play with each other, right? All these guys see it all the time. They're all doing it. like So, like, you know, he had that moment at the corner where I think Tierney was like, had his arms behind his back, was really like trying to grind into the into Kepa. And there was a Spanish centre-back kind of like grappling him and then he'd fall over and you were like, just because you're in a Scotland shirt, obviously you're still going to shithouse like everyone else. Oh, listen, Aaron Hickey, when he did his... Oh, that's an advertising holding. Where's the Where's the line? I'll just roll back. I'll roll three times to get on the pitch, so that he could waste some time. Come on, I I, I told you, shit housing when they're wearing your team strip 
is absolutely fine by me. Everything else is an affront to football and shouldn't be allowed. But when they're wearing your strip, it's like that. Charge on, lads. Fill your boots. On Spain, Richard says, are there concerning times ahead for Spanish football? Poor results in European club competitions this season by Spanish clubs. A poor season quality-wise for La Liga clubs. A small number of Barca, Atleti and Real players starting for Spain. Um, in addition to Jocelyn, we've already mentioned. What do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, I think... It's probably a wider debate, but I think I think the biggest issue is obviously what's going on at Barcelona in terms of the reputation of Spanish football and the outcome of that is going to determine maybe a lot. It's maybe not a vintage time, but I guess that's to be expected just with the budgets in Spanish football below the biggest clubs. They're not having the best of seasons in Europe as a collective, but they're still, Spanish football always still produces. I mean, it's only last season Villarreal were in the Champions League semi-finals. So, you know, it's not as if Spanish football's dead or anything like that. They're always going to produce talent. So even from that point of view, you've still got Pedri, Gavi. They've still got a lot of talent, but teams always go through a sort of transition phase. You're not going to be on the top of your game in every qualifier. You'd still probably back them maybe to potentially to qualify and maybe go deep in the Euros. So it's not as if it's a it's a disaster. But yeah, I do think there's one or two little issues that, that for the reputation of Spanish football probably would be a concern, I think. I was looking, Jonathan, at the uh, 23 uh, for, for those um, uh, internationals. And I noticed two things. One of them is, of course, the fact that there was only one Barca player, one Atletico de Madrid player, and as many Real Sociedad players as Real Madrid players, which already in itself think you think mm, a bit problematic here. And the second thing is that I was looking at the um, uh, the, the very young players in the squad, uh, extremely promising. The older players past the age of 30, actually good players too, many of them. But in the generation that you would expect to form the core of the team, really nobody that struck me as being exceptional. It's almost as if there is a, a generational gap here, which might be compensated for, you know, in three, four years uh, time. But at the moment, they're at, at one of those funny m moments, you know, in, in, the, in the story of a, of a national team where you do have a generational gap and it's not quite there. Uh, the, the people, the, the players that we should come to maturity now are not at quite at the level uh, they were at um, about five years ago, or the level they will be in four or five years. So it might be just like the conjunction of factors here. Paul says, I'm 100% with Philippe. It's madness Scots have to pay to watch their games on TV when England and Wales don't. What, so what happened here, Philippe? It was on Sky in Scotland, was it? And they had to pay? And... No, 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 no. It was not on Sky. No, it was not on Sky. I, I, I should let the indignant message to Jim, to the national, because... Uh, you 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 watched it in a pub, right? Because I would think many people missed it, and I discovered it quite late. I was thinking, oh, I'm I'm going to watch Scotland tonight. Great. I'm thinking, oh, where is it on? Oh, it's on this new platform. Oh, why do I have to take a new subscription to watch a national team play at home against a team like Spain? What's going on? And what's what's been going on, Jim? As far as I understand, it's it's SFA and it's. It's they offered the most money. It's it's as simple as that. It's it's a story. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm trying to say to Filippo Claire that football is all about money. I mean, what what am I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, am I some kind of a hallucinogenic drug? But that's exactly what it is, Philippe. The Scottish Premiership's on Sky, so you can understand that fans would already possibly have that platform. Although via play do have the Scottish Cup and the Scottish League Cup um, rights as well. But that still does not make it a worthwhile platform to pay for on the face of it. But they would just have offered the SFA more money and money talks. It's as simple as that. Uh, it's not just Scotland, by the way. It's the same situation, I believe, applies for Northern Ireland. They have exactly the same situation. And and the thing is that when you start adding up, like if you're a Scottish football fan, and you will keep an eye probably on the English Premier League as well, it means you have to have Sky, BT, Amazon, Viaplay, I mean, you put all that together, that's that's 100 quid a, a month. I mean, how many fans on top, if they want to go to a game, how many people can afford that? That's crazy. And I know these are small sums compared to what, for example, subscribers are playing in, paying in other countries, but it's still, I mean, in this day and age in particular, asking far too much of people. And and the fact that the national team, and we're talking about official games here, see, Max, I think that's the big difference. If it were a friendly I don't think anybody would have too much of a problem, but the fact it's a qualifier for a really big competition. It's a really big... And I I, ha, I also think that Viaplay, the broadcaster, you know, they paid for it, so okay, fine. 
But I think they really missed a trick here. If they had uh, done it free-to-air on this occasion, I think they would have got a lot of goodwill from people in Scotland who might have thought, actually, you know what, I'm going to subscribe to those guys. They did it right this time. Yeah, but I mean, I guess they didn't know Scotland were going to win, did they? Can I just, Jim, can I just come to you on? I mean, I don't like goal music. I'm sure most of you don't. And I don't, but I, but I don't mind music at the end of a game. But actually, freed from desire, it really works. Like it really works. It's got that kind of drop, hasn't it? And then you just you saw like kids, old men, everyone in the lashing rain, just absolutely going for it. It was, it was like it was as good as the game. I will always allow one song at the final whistle where it is that can anthemic. But then after that, let the fans make their atmosphere. I I. I almost stormed out of a cup final, I think 20, 2007, because of the DJ deciding what the fans were singing at the end of it. And I thought, no, just do one anthem and then let us go on with it. But just to say, Philippe, I think the Viaplay missed two tricks because I would have loved to have heard Ali McCoist on Cocoms <laughs> at that game last night because he would have absolutely lost his shit at the end <laughs> and it would have been it would have been utterly magnificent it would have been magnificent uh all right that'll do for part 1 part 2 we'll begin with France's win in Ireland Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Ireland nil, France one. Uh, Caponosity, friend of the pod, says Philippe Auclair, Johnny Halliday, Coco Chanel, Asterix the Gaul. We gave your boys one hell of a moral beating. Uh, Jack, are Ireland the first team ever to win by losing one nil to France? Uh, uh, um, <laughs> uh, what did you What did you make of it, Philippe? I, I think that might be stretching it a little bit, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. Or I think it's uh, it's. In a way, you know, sometimes the way our perception of games is totally framed by how it ends. Uh, not just the scoreline, but the fact that, like, the uh, like people would tell you that France played the great final in the World Cup. No, they didn't. They were absolutely rubbish for 65 or 70 minutes. They were awful. Ireland were terrific and very dangerous in the closing part of the game. They were, they were good before that. I'm not saying that. They were, again, those words well-organized. Uh, they showed that they could play more football, perhaps, that people are, are giving them credit for. Uh, and obviously, there's something is happening um, with, with Kenny uh, uh, at the head of the of the team. But France actually dominated that game. France created, you know, more clear-cut chances and so forth until the end where this reaction was absolutely fantastic. And I have to say, I'm very, very grateful to Mike Mignon for pulling out one of the most beautiful saves. I mean, when I say most beautiful saves, it's because there's something about it when you you freeze frame. It, it, it looks a bit like um, one of the saints in the Sistine Chapel raising for the, he for the heavens. He's that beautiful. And um, so confirmation that we have got an absolutely magnificent uh, successor to Hugo Loris, who was a magnificent servant to the French team. Yeah, Stephen says. Stephen says, "Why did Stephen says why did Larice have to retire? Not a chance he would reach that Nathan Collins header. I mean, it's got a point, hasn't he? I don't think Larice is saving that. Uh, I'm I'm not so sure about it because the Larice I've I've seen and admired for many years with the French team has pulled out some absolutely astonishing saves. Fair, okay. Fair. Uh, but he's Fair. retired at the right time. You see, that's that's the thing. He knew when to say goodbye and." Uh, Bravo to him. But, you know, congratulations to Ireland. They were very, very, very good indeed. Um, quite a few players certainly um, showed that they were better than we gave them credit for. It had to be said, though, Max, that France did take Ireland seriously. They didn't make the mistake that they did in the past, and which makes it all the more remarkable for Ireland. The fact that the French had really studied their game. The French were aware of their strengths and their weaknesses. And it's not as if a France was um, uh, not concentrated, not focused. No, they absolutely were. And even even then, Ireland posed an awful lot of problems to the French team. But you know what? Uh, yeah, six six points after two games, and they were not necessarily the easiest game. Benjamin uh, Benjamin Pavard scoring another absolute stunner off the of the crossbar, which we like, of course. Uh, to add to his small but magnificent collection. You see, I was talking about Sistine Chapel. It would be more mm. of a, 
miniaturist, you know, they, there would be a few, a few medallions in a dark room. There would be only be three of them, but it would be absolutely magnificent. True, but that one, the one in 2018 was a bit of a shin. Is that, you know, yeah, it was a yeah. little bit of a shinner. I mean, I, I'm splitting hairs here. That's I, I, interesting, Jonathan, isn't it? When you look at all the talk about England and how like promising they are and how it's coming together and the Euros will come around and France will be there. And that is an almighty problem, isn't it? For, for, for everyone else, I think. Yeah, France will be there. They, I think they're in a similar sort of um, generational flow as England, maybe even better in terms of just the amount of quality they produce. You know, Chouameni didn't play and Kamavinga comes in, who for me is one of the best midfielders in Europe already um, at a tender age, you know, young age. Randall Colomuani, I think, is starting to really grow in, grow in influence. Um, obviously, he played and I think this summer might, he might be a hot, you know, player like people are looking for as a transfer, maybe potentially to the Premier League. I think he's really, really good. And every game I've seen him, I mean, he, he sort of impresses. Um, I mean, Magnon as well, I think he's a brilliant goalkeeper and has been for many years. Um, I think PSG kind of let him go, really, didn't they? And he was in PSG's academy and never really, um, never really made it there. It's another excellent player like Kingsley Coman, of course, who, who was at PSG's academy and, and, and they let go. Yeah, I mean, France is just... I mean, Philippe, you must be loving it. Just the amount of talent that they produce. Yeah, and also the attitude. I really like that group of players. Um, there, there seems to be a really good... And actually, which actually reminds me a little bit of what is happening with the England national team. So the smart young men who obviously don't have too much ego problems um, and really driven by what they're doing and love playing for, for France as well, uh, which has been the case for... You know, it's always been the case, obviously, but they seem to have something special, which is one of the reasons I think you can see Didier Deschamps is looking more relaxed than I've ever seen him. It's it's incredible. I mean, okay, he went to the World Cup final. That wasn't bad. But since then, like, he's smiling. He's smiling. Didier Deschamps is smiling. And and people in France as well are, are actually quite excited because there's also all these players coming at the back and players who were injured, like, you know, William Saliba, uh, I think most people in England would say, well, why doesn't he start? Well, you know, it's Upamecano Upa and, and, and Konate. Oh, Rafael Varane has retired. Well, actually, it's not as big a prime as we thought it would be. So, yeah, it's a, it's a nice time to be a French fan, I must say. Um, a note from uh, James McLean, who uh, posted on Instagram about his autism diagnosis yesterday. He said, as you all know, my daughter, uh, Willow Ivy, is autistic. The last four years have been life-changing in the most amazing way, but also very difficult at times as her daddy watching her overcome so many obstacles in her life and learning how to manage the challenges she faces on a daily basis. The more Erin and I learned about autism, the more we began to recognize I was very similar in more ways than we thought. I see so many traits in her that I see in myself. I decided to get an ASD assessment. It's been a bit of a journey and now having a diagnosis, I feel it's time to share it. I have debated for a while going public and sharing this as I've done this for Willow Ivy to let her know that I understand and that being autistic won't and should never hold her back from reaching her goals and her dreams. Um, so, uh, yeah, we wish James and his family all the best. Also in that group, the Netherlands beat Gibraltar 3-0 onto Group D. Wales beat Latvia 1-0. Ellis James, I believe, is sending us a voice note, hopefully from a train. So it's some whispering tones from Ellis James. Hi, Max. It's Ellis here. Um, apologies for the background noise because I'm on a severely delayed train. Um, just before I start talking about the Wales-Latvia game in Cardiff last night, uh, quick observation. Who is not flushing the toilet on uh, a train? Why, uh, who, who has, in this day and age, an anti-flush agenda? Why would you do something horrific in a public convenience and uh, rather than flush, look at it and think, yeah, that's fine, leave that there. Anyway, I'm going to keep this brief because I don't want anyone on public transport to hear me uh, do a voice note uh, for The Guardian because it would absolutely destroy my Man of the People brand and uh, sort of vibe. But um, we've got four points out of the first two games, which I don't think anyone expected. Um, obviously, Latvia was the game we were expected to win. We're 105 places above them in the FIFA World Rankings. They came, they defended very deep, they put a lot of men behind the ball. It was immensely frustrating to watch at times, but towering Kiefer Moore header um, just before the end of the first half. He's now scored 10 goals in 33 games for us. He's a, he's a big part of our plans. Uh, it was enough. We only ever needed to win 1-0. And the fact is, we qualified for Euro 2016 with a lot of 1-0 wins with a prime Bale and Ramsey, so there's nothing wrong with winning 1-0. 
slightly subdued atmosphere in Cardiff, I thought, mainly because we've had so many retirements. Our songbook has had to be completely ripped up. Um, none, of the songs, none of the good songs we have are relevant anymore. But anyway, people are looking at me and I'm getting embarrassed. Uh, love you lots. Thank you, Ellis. And, and I didn't thank you on the previous pod. Well, I think I thought I th- thought, thanked you. But when I listened back, it sounded like I didn't really give a shit what you were saying. But I really do. I, I value your voice notes if you are listening to this. It wasn't a brilliant performance necessarily from Wales, but they had a lot of the ball. But in games like this before, it has always been Gareth Bale that has got them out of jail. And so to do that without him and to get four points from these two games is quite significant, I think. You know, I don't think you can really draw big parallels in terms of what it means for the future of Welsh football. You know, Latvia are, what are they, 100, outside the top 100 anyway. And, you know, they weren't great opposition really. But from that point of view, it was significant that they got the win just to sort of calm the nerves a little bit, I think, and, and just let people know that, you know, there is life after Gareth Bale. And obviously he was there to get the, the plaudits and the, the guard of honour and everything on like that, which was nice. But but they have to look to the future. I mean, I know we're going to talk a little bit in part three about non-league contracts and things like that. And, you know, Kiefer Moore is a good example of it. I'm, I'm kind of giving the spoiler away before we had the actual main discussion, but Kiefer Moore played for Truro City and came through non-league. So it just shows you that the the pathways of English football, uh, of English and Welsh football are unpredictable. Um, and he's, you know, he's done a really, he's done really well to sort of carve out that career for himself. And I think, I think Kiefer Moore, and it's nice to see someone like that who's worked so hard climb up through the levels and, and be scoring winners in international games. That was not the spoiler, Jonathan. That was a teaser, a trailer. Yeah. There's a big difference. Yeah. Absolutely sensational. People will now be going, well, I was going to miss part three, but now I know. Um, <laughs> have uh, that, have although, that vibe. Although it is actually, a, it, yeah, it, it's, a, it's actually a very important story and we'll get to it in a second. Croatia won 2 nil in Turkey. Um, uh, the Croatia's keeper made a couple of brilliant saves at nil-nil and, and a couple for Kovacic, Philippe. Yeah, and um, it's it's one of those games when I looked at the uh, scoreline, I thought, ah, you know, just an easy one, Turkey being very disappointed again. Then I watched, you know, a lot of it and I thought, oh gosh, that's quite not quite what I was expecting. And in fact, Turkey were totally on top until Kovacic struck, which I know for Chelsea fans, this is like going to be, what? He scored? No, guys, he scored twice. Twice. He's the Croatian Scott McTominay, isn't he? That's what yeah, and uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. And uh, and the second goal as well was a really bad mistake. The ball lost a, like a, a failed, you know, control in in the Turkish camp, and then the ball, you know, went to I mean, the pass from Modric to uh, actually open, you know, the, the the field was absolutely magnificent. And Kovacic is there when the keeper cannot quite get hold of the ball. And, and the result is is 2-0. A really, really good victory for Croatia. But to be honest, they were not as much, as dominant as you think they would be. And Turkey was not as rubbish as you perhaps guessed. Philippe, you wanted to just a word on, on Belgium's win in Germany. It's a, you know, winning in Germany is always great. De Bruyne was a masterclass from him, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, superb. In fact, they hadn't won in Germany since 1910, which is... Quite a long time. I think even we were on board then. I no. don't remember that game, and, well, and I don't you remember can't the other me game. In the same, sorry, you can't throw me in the same generational pot as you and Jim. Like. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and I do not. I could not remember either the, their last victory against Germany, which was in 1954, which is extraordinary. Uh, so yes, I mean Belgium were really, really convincing. I mean, to be honest, it was uh, not the strongest German team that you would could possibly put together there were quite a few players missing uh but this um this young uh belgian team younger belgian team uh, is in a phase of renewal as well but old kevin de bruyne is still there doing his tricks and he was absolutely magnificent and uh, the other one who was absolutely uh, tremendous I, I loved his goal i mean i love the understanding between those two was romelu lukaku uh, it is just his stats are from belgium are absolutely insane and um, so my Belgian friends were really, really happy. But unfortunately, uh, it was a friendly. Oh, was it? That's interesting. I was like, oh, that's a tough group with those two. I should know these things, shouldn't I? Uh, it was played It was played in the right spirit then, because from the highlights I watched, it looked very much like it was at least a qualifier. You also, Philippe, wanted to have a word on Russia uh, playing football again. They played two friendlies in the international break against Iran and Iraq. They drew with Iran and, and beat Iraq 2-0. Johnny Liu on in The Guardian wrote, on Sunday evening, Ukraine's footballers will step out at Wembley to a vivid fanfare, a sea of flags and bold gestures, an outpouring of affection and solidarity that's greeted them pretty much everywhere they've travelled in the last year. At exactly the same time, in St. Petersburg, Krotovsky Stadium, Russia will play Iraq in their first national team game on home soil 
since the start of last year's war. Good luck finding the game on TV or tracking down a match report on the FIFA website. But seamlessly, almost imperceptibly, Russia has returned to the international football treadmill and nobody seems overly perturbed by it. Yeah, it's a really, really weird situation because last year as well, they played against um, three former Soviet republics, all of them. And you will notice one thing. All the countries they're playing against are from the Asian Confederation. And it looks as if uh, Russia is also going to take part in, in June uh, in an official tournament which brings together countries from Central Asia, basically. Afghanistan will be there as well, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Iran. And it looks as if Russia is drifting more and more and more and more towards Asia and Asia and the Asian Confederation. The idea being they could actually leave UEFA and join the AFC. You could imagine how well that would go down with some people in the AFC, namely Japan, Korea, Australia. Some other countries wouldn't give a whatever uh, about Russia joining them. Uh, but the extraordinary thing, of course, is that people would, would think that Russia is suspended. Well, boys and girls, they are not suspended. They're excluded from competitions, but they are still members of FIFA. They haven't been suspended. It's just like you think, what's going on here? I thought they couldn't play football. I thought their clubs were, uh, you know, outlaws almost. I mean, certainly shunned. Uh, St. Petersburg was supposed to host the Champions League final. Forget about that. Uh, their teams can't play in UEFA competitions, FIFA competitions. They keep on playing friendlies. Mm -hmm. And they're not suspended. And also the, the teams that play the, against them have absolutely nothing, no sanctions whatsoever. There's no problem. They can do it. So it's a very, very strange situation, uh, which honestly, I think FIFA in particular, but UEFA as well, but FIFA in particular, is trying to, um, they're trying to do as if, as, Jonathan, as Johnny Lou you know, was saying, as if it were not happening, as if it was something we could just forget about, hoping that by the time the qualifiers for the next World Cup start, should Russia join the AFC, which is just a possibility, not it's just a scenario, um, the conflict might be over and we can reintegrate uh, Russia within the football family. Um, I don't think there's much chance of that happening, unfortunately. And before we end part two, Philippe, you wanted a word on Manfred Schaefer, who is a name that not every listener will have heard of, but who's sadly passed away. I think all our Australian listeners will know who um, you know we are talking about, and he was really one of the great names of Australian soccer in the you know in in the days when it was starting to become something. Manfred Schaefer, he he was born in Germany but came to Australia when he was very young, when he was a young teenager, and uh, he became really one of the pillars of the the Australian nation, national team, and he was one of the players who took part in the nineteen seventy four World Cup. Uh, and he had a very long club career as well in Australia. Australian football has basically lost a, you know, a great, great figure uh, of its history. So rest in peace, Manfred Schaefer. Thank you, Philippe. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So on to non-league contracts. Uh, Ian says, how do you think the new non-league contracts for players will affect the league as a whole? These new conditions are due to come in on the 1st of July as part of the FA's changes to non-league players' contracts. We'll see injured players in the National League only paid in full for 12 weeks. Clubs will be able to reduce their wages to statutory sick pay of £99.35 a week, payable for 28 weeks or until they're fit. Players also face having their contract terminated with three months' notice. If a club instructed medic feels they're unable to play for four months, uh, the PFA has told the FA it cannot support the measures, feels they give clubs greater powers to release players. Um, Jonathan, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so obviously Philippe gave a full disclosure earlier about maybe uh, his, his affiliations or his, his leanings towards Scotland. Uh, and, and, and in terms of full disclosure for myself, obviously I work for a consultancy that works in kind of non-league and helping um, semi-pro footballers um, transition to pro. Um, so in, in that sense, I'd like to think I know a fair amount about the, the issues. It's an issue that's created a huge scandal in, in non-league um, because essentially, Max, as you've just described there, if you take the National League and the National League South and North, which is sort of level six of English football, um, two leagues below League Two, a lot of these clubs are now professional. So, you know, you look at Notts County, Wrexham, everybody knows about the Wrexham story. You know, these are full-time clubs that train every day. It's not the old non-league where you, you know, have a load of duffers just who turn up and have a kickabout. Um, obviously, some of the clubs are still part-time, so there is a mix. But the point is that 
they're not part of the PFA, so they don't belong to the PFA in non-league. It's uh, PFA is for league only, pretty much. So you've got this mix of like non-league players who aren't part of the PFA, and then players who have come from the football league who have dropped into non-league because it is a a league where you can earn a good living. You know, if you look at the average weekly wage at Notts County or Wrexham or some of the other clubs at that level, you know, you've got teams like Scunthorpe, big big clubs in the past who've maybe fallen on harder times like Southend. What the new contracts is essentially saying is that you would be treated as kind of an employee and, and therefore get statutory, statutory sick pay if you get an injury of longer than, I think, three, four months. Now, of course, if you've signed the contract of, let's say, £800 a week, £900 a week, £1,000 a week, and you break your leg or you do your cruciate ligament, which, you know, in football is a risk every time you take to the field. What the FA and these new contracts are essentially saying is that after three months, a club appointed official can turn around to you and say, well, we're going to put you on statutory sick pay now. You're going to be on £99 a week. Now, I know, obviously, we talk a lot about the Premier League and the, the top levels of football. A lot of fans seem to think, well, you're footballers. You should just get on with it. But the point here is that they're not those Premier League top level footballers on millions of pounds a, uh, a year, etc. These are people with mortgages who, if you reduce your salary from sort of £800 a week to £99 a week and you've got three children and you're paying a mortgage, you know, that's a massive hit to your, to your, to your wages. So the contracts have caused a massive scandal. I think it's really, I don't know who's behind it and what the idea is really in terms of what, what the thinking is behind it. In, in past contracts, it was if you have become permanently incapacitated, then you no longer have to, um, you know, the club can get an independent individual to judge your contract. And then maybe if you're permanently incapacitated, they can maybe take action. This one, it's literally three to four months. They can then reduce your wages and they can terminate your contract after four months. So if you broke your leg and you've signed your deal in, say, August, by December, they could just terminate your contract and say goodbye, which, you know, when you're putting your life, your body on the line for the, the club, it's just not a fair exchange. It's caused a huge outrage, obviously, as you would expect. Um, all captains of every single team in the National League put a statement out saying that they want urgent talks with the FA because they were not consulted. Um, there's talks about maybe potentially players going on strike uh, and even amongst managers and that the depth of the feeling is really strong. Um, people are asking like, who, who actually passed this because even the PFA themselves came out and said, we, we don't represent non-league players, but we, do support the, we don't support these new contracts at all. So there's a big question mark as to why this was done. I know it's sort of to do with employment law and they're trying to maybe bring the contracts in line with sort of UK employment law. But I mean, as everybody who knows anything about football knows, football contracts are not, you know, standard employment contracts, are they, at the end of the day? So, And like the FA said, look, this is from the FA. It says, following a period of consultation with the relevant stakeholders, we've updated the standard form non-league contract in order to better reflect current employment legislation, provide each party with greater certainty in this area. In doing so, we've sought to balance the interests of both clubs and players. But like you say, and, uh, and we interviewed on the radio the Bromley captain, and he said, well, we weren't consulted. You know, so like the players are clearly relevant stakeholders in this. And he made a really good point, which is, you know, if you are, if this is on your mind when you're playing, then you are not, you, you might think twice about going in for a certain challenge or, and actually sometimes you risk getting injured even more if you don't go in, you know, wholeheartedly into a challenge. And then it creates this idea that, you know, players will look to get contracts to say, well, I want it in my contract that you're not going to do that. So obviously experienced players, better players will have that. So it actually, and you know, if you're, a, if you're a club with lots of money, you might say your star player, okay, we'll put that in your contract. But it means so younger players and, you know, up and coming players play, have a greater risk. And like you say, these, these people are, they're earning a living, right? They are you know, getting by. Sometimes some of them get paid reasonably well, but they're not making millions of pounds, you know. They have to do this job because they love it and then get another career afterwards and think about what that career is. And he said, you know, it would actually dissuade some semi-pro players from going, do you know what? I'm probably better off not bothering being a footballer at all. So I just, you know, like, I, I, that's what the FA have said. Also, Max, if I may say so, if, if I may say so, there's one thing. I mean, this is totally, I, I, I didn't know all of this, Jonathan. Thank you very much for clearing this up. I'm, I'm astonished, I'm stunned, and I'm disgusted. But there's one thing. So you have fewer rights if you earn less money than if you're a millionaire. That's what I hear. If you're a lower league player playing in a professionalized environment, you do not have the same level of protection as people who earn in a week what you might earn in two or three or four years, and maybe 10 years. That's absolutely disgraceful. 
I mean, you, you're right. I mean, there's, there's, I know it's, it's like I said, it's a lower level of football, but you do have some full-time clubs even in, in the National League South and North. Now, what they're saying is for that, le- for that league, you're only guaranteed your full wages for six weeks, you know, um, before you move to the, the club can, you know, just suddenly decide to, to, to reduce your contract. So, the, 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 you know, there's, there's, it's really unfair on the players. And um, as you said there, Max, I totally agree with the idea that your players, if you're going into a 50-50 challenge and you're thinking to yourself, well, if I get injured, I might not be able to pay my rent for the next, you know, if I, if you face a bad injury, which most, you know, every player will get injured at some point in their career. Like you said, you're gonna, you may think twice about going into that challenge and that can actually risk injury even more. So yeah, it's really strange. The fact that they weren't consulted as well, the players, they all just received an email um, with the new contracts, basically. And that's why it caused a lot of outrage because players just got this email and, and were like, wait, what's this? So yeah, it's really strange. I think there'll be a lot of talk about it to come, but um, it just shows you that at the lower level of the game, it's strange goings on really and uh, not really entirely fair. Yeah, can I just echo what um, Philippe said? I, this is the first time I've heard that, that. That's horrific because these guys, look, you say these aren't guys who've got big signing on fees and have got a lot of money sitting in the bank that they can fall back on. And those new contracts, when they start to go for certain financial services like mortgages or whatever, a mortgage broker is going to look at their contract and say, well, hang on a minute here. There's a chance that this Saturday... Within three months, you're only earning £99 a week. So, do you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. You know, you're going to get turned down. Instead of looking at maybe a three-year contract where they say, we know that this man is going to get £1,000 a week every week for the next three years minimum. And that's out the window. So that then is impacting on their lives. And it's horrific. Absolutely horrific. Yeah, and I think I think also just just finally maybe on that, in terms of um, me going on about it, but the the, the fact that um, a club instructed medic rather than an independent professional can judge if the injury is bad enough to terminate your contract uh, on on you know if it's longer than four months injury. I mean, who who is making these? You know, who who who's incentivized by that contract? You know, a club appointed medic could just be. Hi everybody, I'm Doctor Nick. It's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So you can, it just, it just skews the argument even more. The fact that they're removing that independent um, adjudicator to a sort of club appointed medic. So yeah, it just seems really uh, sort of scandalous to be honest. On the positive side, um, Macclesfield, obviously owned by Robbie Savage, they've come out and said that they will not uh, adopt these new contracts. One or two clubs have sort of come out and said that they'll stick with the old contracts. But at the end of the day, you're still going to have a a selection of clubs who are going to sneakily put in you know the, the, those clauses and have this this there and I think one of the things that in terms of the work I, I do I don't want to make it about myself but a lot of this play you know at the top level of football you've got advisors all over you know what I mean you've got people advising you what you eat for breakfast you've got people advising you where you know your commercial deals etc but at that lower level of football a lot of these players won't actually know the implications of what they're signing sometimes um, because they don't have someone maybe necessarily in their corner to, to look at this sort of stuff so I think that um, it's another example of just players potentially getting exploited and, and not really necessarily knowing what contract they're kind of signing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and, 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 you know, in terms of money that filters down from the top, you know, that is another conversation. We look forward to the white paper and the regulator and see if that comes in and happens and if it makes a difference. Who knows? On to any other business and some wholesome content from our friend Dan at uh, Hopkin Looks to Curl One, uh, the Palace podcast. So you saw that Union Berlin had done a happy birthday tweet for their bus driver, like a video, including like, you know, like just sort of like little shots of him, including one of him like at the wheel driving the bus. So, you know, uh, Union Berlin, one of the good guys. Adam says, not a question. I would just be happy to hear more about Gary Bannister. He was world-class for Darlow. Um, thank you so much. George did say on other inanimate objects, I don't know if you listened to the last pod, but uh, uh, somebody sent Gary Bannister a banister. He signed it and sent it back to them. And uh, George has suggested, uh, you know, uh, John Stones, you could send him some stones. You could send Harry Kane a cane. Uh, you could send Danny Drinkwater a bottle of water. And Chris Wood, just some wood, couldn't you? I saw Chris Wood's looking very sort of uh, studious behind Steve Clark last night. Uh, I think it was Chris Wood's. I'm pretty certain it was Chris Wood's. Uh, on the bench for Scotland. Uh, a, a tweet from Noza who says, there's a bloke on the Charlton Forum who claims to have only missed five episodes of Soccer AM in 28 years. God, he's going to have a, a, a sad August next time for next season for him when it's uh, not on at all. But um, good for him. 
I hope all those five weren't during my tenure. But um, anyway, on the subject of Starboy, which Noz brought up on Monday, Jesse says the Starboy thing isn't just any player who's good. It's not, it's a Nigerian thing apparently, which comes from Wizkid, who calls himself Starboy. The next message we need is to tell us who Wizkid is, and then, you know, it's not Wizbit, but that, that's something entirely different. And uh, Helen says, which one of the Football Weekly panelists could finish Jack Grealish's post-match Chinese? He said, I have Singapore chow mein, egg fried rice, salt and pepper chips, salt and pepper prawns, then curry sauce. I mix it all in and have a big free-for-all in there. Sounds pretty grim. Uh, Jim, your hand is raised. And I know you eat a lot of shite, but that has got Lars Sivertson's breakfast written all over it. No, actually, I would absolutely have tackled that. No problem. Wouldn't finish it, but I would tackle it. No problem. <laughs> Finally, Seb says, I've put off sending this email on multiple occasions, but after Monday's pod, I had to intervene. Does Max and the team honestly think that the sheer volume of Simons that not only listen to the podcast, but also feel inclined to get in touch is some coincidence and not a juvenile yet effective attempt at getting Max to say Simon says? Or will it take a Simon texting in the message jump up and down for the panel to clock on? I counted three on Monday's pod from Simon in London. Actually, my name's Seb, but fuck it. Let's see if he says it. Um, I, I, I just don't think there's a sort of... Is there, like, if people have that much time on their hands to get together and all call themselves Simon, for Simon Says? I mean, who does Simon Says anymore? It feels, that feels ancient. Um, <laughs> anyway, if you are called Simon, get in touch and we'll run a totalizer. Uh, and that'll do for today. Uh, thank you so much, Philippe. Thank you very much, Max. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Max. Worth saying that, Jim, for the whole of this podcast, Justin Morehouse has been lying in a bed behind you in silence is that is that correct it is indeed um i think we'll go for breakfast now that i have finished my my duties it's been quite yeah. the day it's been quite the day does uh does does he want to have the final word justin would you like to say something to the good people of the pod well about about scotland up the scotland <laughs> when does he go out before they sell tickets for tonight no He's not looking for, he's not really looking for a place on the panel, is he, with that sort of insight? But thank you, Justin. It's nice to see him lying in bed. I'm asking no questions. And Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. This is The Guardian. 